There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in town at the ranch microwave. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, we have an unbelievable show tonight. Of course, we're reporting upon the arrest in the Gilgo Beach case, but we have a very, very special guest tonight. I was surprised I was able to get her, but I called her first as this was just happening before her phone started ringing off the hook. And I, I got her on the phone real early. And tonight we have as our guest, Dr. Joni Johnston. Uh, she's a forensic psychologist, a private investigator, a crime writer. She has her own podcast called Unmasking a Murderer, uh, a YouTube channel and a producer, author of Serial Killers, 101 Questions, True Crime Fans Asks. Uh, Dr. Joni Johnson has an interest in the link between law and psychology. As a forensic psychologist and private investigator, she specializes in criminal forensic work and conducts violence risk assessments, mitigation evaluations, insanity evaluations, and incompetency to stand trial assessments. She's currently a blogger for Psychology Today, The Human Equation, co-host of forensic radio podcast, Thread of Evidence, and she's the host and produces a true crime YouTube channel. Again, we mentioned it before, Unmasking a Murder, Murderer. And she's written three books. And she served as a mental health journalist in Dallas, Texas, and host and produced a mental health television show through UCSDTV. Her specialties include forensic psychology, workplace violence, workplace investigations, criminal behavior, management consulting, and journalism. Dr. Jonia, again, one of the reasons I wanted to bring her on tonight, of course, is to do an evaluation. Of course, from afar, she's not personally examining uh, Rex Uerman, but based on his behavior, based on the evidence that has come up against him, tell us what we're dealing with here. And I think that is part of Dr. Joni's specialty. And I know you guys don't want to hear me talk anymore. You want me to introduce Dr. Joni, but before I introduce Dr. Joni, I'm going to introduce my co-host tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. Welcome to the show tonight, Phil. Thank you for having me, Billy, and I'm very, very interested to get into this case. This is going to be a big one. You know, 100%. And, and you know, Doc, I've had uh, Dr. Joni on before, and uh, she's so measured and so smart, and she, I love to use this expression, she walks the walk and she can talk to talk. And without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Joni Johnston. Dr. Johnston, welcome to the show. It is so much fun to be here, and that was such a great introduction. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> well, people people already love you. I've gotten so many uh, uh, kind words about you before you even came on the show. Now, Dr. Johnson, I know, and I'll call you Dr. Joni. Uh, Johnson seems a little bit too formal. So Dr. Joni, uh, Rex Uerman. I mean, we don't see serial killers very often these days because one of the reasons is because with the technology that we have today, they don't get to be serial killers. They get caught very early on in their serial killer career. And I know you have the book, 101 Questions You Can Ask About Serial Killers. I'm going to ask the first right now. Uh, tell our audience what qualifies you to be a serial killer. Well, up until 2005, the definition was somebody who killed three or more people in separate events. So we're all familiar with mass killers who go out and kill four or more people in the workplace shooting or shooting up a high school. And that's the difference is that it, for a serial killer, they must do uh, at least three murders again before 2005 through at least three separate occasions. Um, and there used to be this theory that there was this cooling off period in between. 
So there's this, this kind of this theory that this person has this urge to kill. They go out, they do it for a while. They're kind of satiated. And then the urge starts over again and it builds up and they do it again. Then in 2005, the FBI wanted to get involved in more cases. They were being asked to get involved in more cases. And they said, you know, maybe we should narrow the, def the number down to two because really most people who murder, which of course most people don't murder, but those who do, very few kill two. So, you know, more than one person on separate occasions. So that, that by and of itself should separate people out. If you kill more than one person over, you know, two different events, that separates you out. So right now, really, to meet the definition of a serial killer, it's just somebody who kills at least two people on se at separate times. And that actually, you know, that's good that you explain that to our audience because people are thinking, well, what if someone kills five people at once? That's known as a mass killer, yes. not a serial killer. A serial killer that has to be time in between each event. And in, in the in the the Bible, we used to be the Bible for the NYPD and for a lot of homicide investigations throughout the world was a book called Practical Homicide Investigation by Vernon Gebreth. And he cited the FBI definition of what a serial killer is, and that's two or more incidents with time in between. And you just defined it very well. Now, Rex uh, Uerman, obviously he's, he's disturbing to all of us, but yesterday I think we wanted to take that time and let the Suffolk County police, you know, the expression is spike that football. This was an amazing arrest, an amazing investigation, and it went on for 13 years. And they've taken it on the chin many times or many problems with this investigation over those 13 years. But it seems like when Rodney Harrison, the NYPD chief of detectives, and he was also chief of department, came to Suffolk County, and right away he was focused on the Gilgo serial case. And he came up with the idea, let's start a joint task force with the FBI, the Suffolk County Police, the New York State Police, the Sheriff's Department, and the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. And lo and behold, it, it bore fruit uh, rather quickly. Phil, you want to comment on that? Yes, uh, I think that it was a combination of absolutely. Rodney Harrison went into the uh, police commissioner's position in the Suffolk County Police Department. He made it clear from day one that he wanted to focus on finding the killer, the serial killer of the Gilgo Beach uh, homicides. Uh, there were, uh, I believe, about 10 bodies found. Uh, four of them were found initially. We, they were referred to as the Gilgo Four. And uh, I know the uh, police commissioner, Rodney Harrison, he was a, a former member of the NYPD. He was a detective. He was a sergeant, uh, both in the detective bureau. He was also a detective in narcotics. And he went up the ranks. Uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, your uh, your uh, supervisor or boss that was a, uh, a bookworm that stayed, you know, avoided patrol, avoided being in the in the fray and studied to become uh, a chief of department and also chief of detectives. He was the guy that was in it, uh, rolled his sleeves up, wasn't afraid to get dirty, uh, had a lot of time in the detective bureau. So his persistence, I think, uh, along with all of the technology that was developed from uh, the time when these murders were first uh, recovered, uh, I think they go back all the way to 2009. So his persistence in uh, trying to get to the bottom of it, along with the technology that uh, was developed since then, uh, DNA came a long way in that period of time. And then he even brought back some retired detectives that had worked on the case. And I just want to point out one thing. He he, he pointed out that Rex Harriman was, was evil. He, he called him uh, demonic evil. Uh, he said it was a good day because he knew that someone that was so, so bad was taken off the streets. But he also recognized the investigators. You know, he wasn't spiking the football saying, I, I, I. He uh, recognized all of the different police agencies and he recognized the investigators. He obviously recognized the families as well, right in the beginning of the press conference. So I tip my hat to him. I'm so glad that he's a former member of the NYPD. He makes me proud to have been a detective in the NYPD. His uh, character is just uh, tremendous. And uh, I think, like I said, it was a combination of many things. And if you read the 32-page uh, indictment, uh, there was really some tremendous investigators that went to work on this case. I, Phil, I, wanted, I just want to get to to, uh, to show, Dr. Joni, I want you to weigh in on this, but I want to show a little bit of video on who Rex Uerman is and what he looks like 
to all the people out in uh, in podcast land? Rex Huerman, I'm an architect. I'm an architectural consultant. I'm a troubleshooter, born and raised on Long Island. Okay. Been right. working in Manhattan since 1987. I have one tool that's pretty much used in almost every job, and it's actually a cabinet maker's hammer. Kevin, oh, okay, Kevin hammer. Okay, it is persuasive enough <laughs> when I need to persuade something. Not it, someone. Something. <laughs> Sometimes I have to be the. <laughs> Heavy framing hammer. <laughs> Other times I'm the lightweight hammer just to nudge things. Dr. Joni, just taking a look at him, he could be, you know, John Q. Citizen, normal, you know, uh, architect, works in Manhattan, lives in Massapequa, Long Island. But then let's get, we'll get into his personality and things that were found. I mean, that was a little creepy too, that, that hammer he was just talking about. You know, I wonder if that will come up in any of these cases, you know? It, it is really difficult, isn't it? When we know kind of where things are now, not to look at that video and read kind of sinister, <laughs> sinister things in there. But you're absolutely right. He's got a nice shirt. He's, you know, in Manhattan. He's doing a business interview. If we didn't know the context, we would think, yeah, this is just a successful businessman who's doing an interview about his business. And Dr. Joni, in, in the world of serial killers, and this is very, to put it very simply, there's organized offenders and there's disorganized offenders. And an organized offender is usually one that owns a car, owns a house, is financially independent, is educated, is articulate, uh, can travel around just fits in with mainstream society. I think we would say that Rex Juerman is an organized defender, but with signs of disorganization. Would you comment upon that? Yeah, it's interesting because the comments that we've gotten from his neighbors and then looking, for example, the contrast between his home and the appearance of his home and in his business and how polished he looks in that, you know, in that picture, there is kind of a disconnect there. You know, and so we do kind of think, yeah. And it's interesting, Bill, because um, you're right. The earliest classifications for serial killers was organized versus disorganized. And I think as the years have gone by, we've realized that most serial killers are organized to some extent, or they wouldn't be able to be a serial killer, right? So there's some degree of organization. And then the, and also that even the most organized serial killer, given the right circumstances with the opportunity that's there, may become disorganized in terms of grabbing a victim just because they have, they can. So I think that that distinction has become a little bit blurred, but I think it is useful because we can talk about somebody who's, for example, married, has a home, has a business, is not somebody who's going to be necessarily snatching people off the street or hitting them with a hammer in the subway. But at the same time, he displayed some attributes and uh, of a disorganized offender. And specifically, I'm going to point to something that occurred very recently. A woman made a police report against him. I believe it was just, uh, it, it was July 3rd in a park in Massapequa where this large man popped out of the woods and started asking her like creepy questions. And she was so creeped out that she made, she got away from him as quickly as she could, but she made a police report. That's how creeped out she was about this guy. And then when she saw he was arrested and she saw who it was, she was like, that's the guy who approached oh God, me yeah. in this park. So, Doc, my question to you is, he was still working, wasn't he? He was still plying his trade. You know, I will be very surprised if we find out that the last victim was killed in 2011 or 2012. Mm -hmm. And it's not because serial killers cannot stop, because we used to think unless they were incarcerated, unless they, you know, um, died, you know, unless something drastic happened, they would never stop killing on their own. We know that's not true. There have been serial killers who've taken long periods of time where they stopped. We know the Golden State Killer, for example, Joseph D'Angelo quit, you know, 20 years before he was caught. So it's not that serial killers don't stop. But when we read things like this person is still using a burner phones, this person is still contacting um, people right. who are engaging in sex work, that is what concerns me because I'm not familiar, you know, the research does not support, you know, that there are sexually motivated serial killers, 
who continue to do part of their job, and I'm putting that job in quotation marks, of course, but not the rest of it. That would be very, very atypical. So that does concern me. I mean, I would be very interested in knowing if he's been involved with, you know, with women who are engaging in sex work and has not killed them, what their experience has been like with him. What is he doing? That's that's a great point, you know, and I wanted to also ask you about uh, as long, you know, we have uh, you here and you're an expert on this and you've interviewed hundreds and thousands of people in, you know, serial killers and uh, sex offenders in prisons. MO, modus operandi, uh, which for our folks that are not familiar with uh, Latin, I'm fluent in Latin, I know MO, you know, modus operandi, which is simply method of operation. And then, doctor, if you would explain signature. And he has two very distinct modus operandi and signatures. And explain, please, Dr. Uh, Johnson, Dr. Joni. It's like being in your class. Please, Dr. Johnson. Would you, Joni. Please, Dr. Dr. Joni. Would you, I pay $50,000 a year to study with you. Would you please explain <laughs> the difference between modus operandi and signature? Well, you really did a great introduction for there. In other words, you know, an MO is what they actually physically do to commit the crime, the way they do that. And the signature is not, it's more for psychological reasons. So, you know, I may strangle somebody um, because to, to overpower them, that would be perhaps part of an MO. But if I'm leaving that person with a red ribbon tied around their neck every time I kill them, or I'm stuffing a sock in their mouth, that is not a part of a crime. There, that is not necessarily hurting that person. It's not serving any kind of physical purpose. But for me, as the killer, it may have a very significant psychological meaning. And that's what a signature is. And it can be a, anything from laying a body out in a certain way, binding them in a certain way. I mean, you know, your imagination can, can run wild in terms of what a signature can be. But it's something that's added to a crime scene or taken away from a crime scene that has a personal meaning and serves some kind of psychological meaning to that perpetrator. You know, Dr. Joni, I always found that perpetrators didn't like to deviate from their modus operandi. That was what made them comfortable, as you just said. And one of the signature things, I think, in this case with Rex Ewerman was the burlap, the burlap um, and they described it as like a camouflage type bag that he used uh, to bind the victims. So that is definitely a signature of this of this defendant. Phil, what do you think? Well, the burlap bag turned out to uh, hold DNA evidence, uh, hair follicles. So I think that was one of the things that led to, uh, you know, the arrest of uh, Max Hallerman, uh, Rex Hallerman. Uh, I believe that three hairs were found from his wife that were definitely uh, uh, matched to his wife. And there was one of uh, one of the bodies displayed a hair that was matched to him. So, uh, again, I, I think that uh, we talked about the way that serial killers uh, operate, the modus operandi. Uh, he definitely displayed sexual sadism tendencies. If you read through that 32-page uh, indictment, uh, he was taunting victims' families. He was doing a lot of different things. And uh, very likely that he uh, got euphoria out of killing these women. So I think uh, the, the differences that I, I watched uh, Dr. Joni's video from earlier today, and she explained the differences in serial killers that some will just kill because of an instrumental uh, to, to just... Uh, so they don't get caught. They they do a sexual uh, act on a person and they kill them because they don't want to be captured. But then there are other uh, serial killers that will kill. And the the uh, the excitement, the sexual arousal is accomplished by the killing, by the torturing. So I think he falls into that category. And I think Dr. Joni feels that way as well. But there was one question that I had for Dr. Joni. Now, we know that sometimes they will take uh, a p an article of clothing, what we call a trophy, or they'll take something to uh, relive the act that they committed. Now, from what I've been seeing on the news, the bodies were placed in a close proximity to his home. Is that part of his uh, trying to relive these uh these fantasies that he, he uh, you know, that he goes through after he commits these acts. It certainly could be. I mean, there can be multiple reasons he would leave them relatively close to his home. One is convenience, right? Isn't right. that far away? He's probably familiar with the area. So there's some practical reasons. Um, although I, I think I was reading that he took some selfies at some of these locations. 
And when you start doing things like that, where you're photographing the area or you're taking selfies, that is then, I, I would agree with you, Phil, that is when you're starting to think about, okay, this is a way for him to keep these pictures and relive them. This is a way for him. Same thing about taunting victims. There may be a sadistic heart, and I think there is. I mean, how, how cruel is it to call oh. up a family member and tell them in detail what you've done to their loved one and taunt them and those kinds of things. And it's also a way for him to probably relive the experience. So it's, it's you know, there is, I, I would certainly agree with you. And I know I talked about it on my video earlier. I think there is, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, just because when you have a sexually motivated serial killer who, where sadism is a huge part of that drive, then it's so horrifying to think about what the victims may have suffered before death, because that really implies that it's not even the, the death specifically, it's not the sex specifically, it's the torture, it's the pain and suffering that's the sexual turn on. Um, and that's, you know, in, in some respects, that's every person's worst nightmare when you think about encountering somebody who's going to do you harm. Absolutely. You know, Doc, you said in your video, in the psychopathy, sexual sadists have no empathy. The pain inflicted is what turns them on. And uh, Rex Human sexually, he watched sexually sadistic porn or searched it on his computer. That is scary. That is showing you that he is who he is. You know, uh, some of the investigative techniques, some of the investigative uh, things they did in this case was simply amazing. Uh, they used over 300 subpoenas. They actually were able to search his computer without him even knowing about it. That is incredible. And of course, we're going to find out down the road that what people have been referring to as IgG, and I don't like to use the acronym of the shortage, it stands for Investigative Genetic Genealogy. There is no doubt that that came into play in this case. And even in this 32-page report that I actually broke down and printed it in my, in my home, um, they talk about lab number one and lab number two. For whatever reason, they don't want the defense to know about the labs that process this DNA right now. But very interesting also is that these cases go back to 2010 and in fact, one of them was missing since 2007, but was not recovered till 2010. So we're talking 13 years. What happened over 13 years? I'll tell you what happened. Science advanced unbelievably, specifically in regards to DNA. And I'm not going to act like I'm a DNA expert. I am not, far from it. But there was DNA used to be processed through a technique called STR which stood for short tandem repeats. Now, look, I, I like everyone else listen to CC Moore, I think is amazing. And she spoke about the SNP technique, which stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. The fact that I can say that, I deserve a PhD. Say it know? three times first. Man. I can't, I can't. Fast. I said it once and I'm proud of myself. But You're, the college professor in you is coming out right now. That's great. That, it was the really difference great. is in uh, short tandem repeats, there's only about 20 markers in which the DA can be identified. With SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism, said it twice, um, there's over 1 million markers. And that is how they get the leads that build these family trees that result in the identification of the DNA. And of course, according to C.C. Moore, this should never be used for probable cause, just should be used as a lead that builds the case against a potential uh, defendant. But Dr. Joni, you want to speak upon that, the technology and what we've learned and, and how, you know, how this is affecting the whole world of serial killers. Again, as I said, it, they could become absolute as well could be serial rapists also. It is a complete game changer. I mean, I can't think of anything that's been more significant in terms of solving crimes or serial crimes in particular, um, I guess, since maybe fingerprints were invented or, you know, or, or, or you know, blood typing or whatever. But even that, because, you know, if you are able to link you know, this person's DNA, um, that literally the odds of it being somebody else is is greater than the entire population of the world. And that's some of the odds are that dramatic then, you know, how do you defend against that? 
you can, I guess you can defend against it by saying, okay, the chain of custody was off or there was a mistake in the lab or they, the samples got mixed up. I mean, you're going to have to do something like that because how can you directly attack that result if you've proven it? Because the odds are just astronomical. Well, Dr. Joni, you hit it right on the head. The defense attorneys will attack the processing. They'll attack the methodology. Where'd you find it? Was it secured? Was it, could anyone else have had access to it? There's a question from the chat, a, a good uh, supporter of ours. I want to ask you this, Dr. Johnson. Dr. Johnson, if the MO is covered in burlap, what would or how could this be tied to, to dismemberment in other cases? So I'm, I'm wondering, um, Lou, if you're talking about the other cases that were found around this area. So I'm going to assume that you're saying that, that, that that's the case. So my understanding at this point, and I would like the detectives here to jump in here if, um, because you're more in the investigative part of it. My understanding is that there is currently no clear evidence that he is definitely linked to these other victims. There have been some different opinions about whether he killed perhaps the, what we were initially referred to as the, you know, the Gilgo Beach Four. Uh, although I know he hasn't been charged with um, with Maureen Brainerd Barnes yet. Um, and and the fact that these other victims, they're kind of way where they were, I don't want to say disposed, what was a better word to say, but they were found looking differently. They weren't covered in burlap and, you know, their bones were scattered all over and that kind of thing. Now, it's again, it's not, it isn't impossible that serial killers do change their MO for all different kinds of reasons. We know that, unfortunately, they're not quite as predictable as we used to think that they were, but it also speaks to the possibility that there could be another killer out there. You what know, Dr. You I'm sorry, Dr. Joni, I just wanted to put this on the screen. And these are the four victims known as the Gilgo Four. And uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, she, uh, obviously it's on the screen, she was missing since July, 2007. Uh, he's been charged so far with the, the murders of Melissa Bartolome, uh, Amberlynn Costello, and Megan Waterman, with the expectation that, uh, I guess, when they tighten up the case in regards to Maureen Brainerd Barnes, that he will also be charged with, with that case also. I think they want to make sure that they cross their T's, they dot their I's. There's no rush right now. He's in custody. He's not getting out, you know. He's being held without bail. In fact, this 32-page, and I would say any of you guys that are uh, interested in this case, which obviously you are, print it up. You can pull it up on the New York Times website. You can pull it, just search it, and it's referred to it as the um, the bail application in regards to Rex Uerman. And it's it, it all, Billy, Billy, it, it also, the 32 pages also uh, shows some evidence that connects to uh, uh, Brainard Bonds. Maureen Brainard Barnes. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely a connection. However, I don't think they felt comfortable enough to charge him at this point. Like you said, there's no rush. They got the three, uh, three uh, murder one counts, three murder two counts. He's in custody. He's not going anywhere. They'll do some further, uh, you know, investigation and perhaps they will charge in the future on that case. But if you read through it, there's definitely a connection to him and that young lady's disappearance. Dr. Joni, you know what's interesting uh, with these burner phones and also with the two of the victims' phones, which he took and taunted their relatives uh, with the use of their phones. And when you talk about sadistic behavior, that absolutely is sadistic behavior of a serial killer. Do you think there's a possibility that he brought his victims back to his home? Because lots of times the, the um, burner phones would ping in Massapequa. And every time uh, the burner phones um, and, and he called for a date from one of these escorts, his wife was out of the country. So is there's a possibility that he brought them to the Adams family house uh, that where he lives. You know, I'm just being funny. First Avenue in Massapequa. And that's another thing, Dr. Joni, I spoke to you about it off the air. He's an architect that had a house that was dilapidated and disgusting. And the people in the neighborhood were like, everyone's got a beautiful house. And this guy's an architect and his house looks like it's, you know, 1313 Mockingbird Lane. Yeah, I, I've thought about, you know, a bunch of different guesses as to why that could be. But to, to answer your question, um, Bill, I would be surprised 
if he didn't take these women back to his house. You know, if this is somebody particularly who was interested in inflicting pain and getting off on that, he's going to need to take them somewhere where they're not going to be heard as much, where he has complete control over them, where he's not going to have to worry about somebody stumbling by or seeing car lights all of a sudden in the middle of his fantasy or whatever. And so I would be very surprised if he didn't take him to his house. I would imagine he took them somewhere inside where he could take his time and do whatever he wanted to do with them. And the I site agree. where he disposed of the bodies is 10 or 15 minutes from his house. They say he could look across the bay. I don't know. I, I haven't been to that mm -hmm. area of First Avenue in Massapequa Park, but I know where it is. Uh, I grew up in Levittown, Long Island, which is only 15 minutes from Massapequa. And Massapequa, those, the Baldwin family lived there. Uh, Alec Baldwin, his brother Billy, uh, Jerry Seinfeld grew up in uh, Massapequa. So there's some, you know, just to put that on the map, not that I care that they live there, but it's a middle to upper middle class uh, neighborhood. And here's a man living this double, more than a double life, you know, of a father uh, living in suburbia, taking the train every day to work, owning a small company where he's an architect. And yet he has this evil, evil secret that he's kept how many years? How many? And the other thing is, Dr. Joni, he bought the house that he lives in from his parents. That's the house he grew up in. Is that a little strange, too? I, I think that the fact that he's comfortable there, and I agree with Dr. Joni, that, I, I mean, if you read the, the indictment based on the cell phone technology, it's showing that his phone was pinging at location as well as that burner phone. And then the victim's phones traveled to that location. So the chances that he did... Uh, horrible things in that location, I think, are very high. And if you look at uh, the way that the crime scene investigators were going through that house, uh, they were fully, uh, you know, their bodies were fully covered. And I'm sure they're going to do extensive, extensive uh, investigation on that house and crime scene investigation, you know, looking for any piece of evidence. And perhaps there may be something that could be uncovered that would tie the victims to that home. But I think the chances are very high that he did bring those victims to that home for sure. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with, count them, five different levels. You see the folks in the green font. They're part of our subscribers our YouTube family and the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories family, and they support us, and we love our subscribers. <laughs> uh, you know, Dr. Joni, I, this case is really so fascinating, and when you think that this has been in the consciousness of Long Island, this big area of Long Island, for over 13 years, and everyone has talked, there's been, I don't know how many documentaries there's been on this case, but there's also, if there's 10 or 11 remains in connection with this case, perhaps not all of them are related. Then what does that tell you? Yeah. Was this a dumping ground for bodies that uh, other serial killers know about? I mean, what? why was there 10 bodies at this location? So far as we said, uh, I can pull up, th this is the picture of all of the victims. And I think there was one male that perhaps isn't isn't listed on this, but that's that's a scary thought. But we don't know right now. They haven't connected all of these victims to this uh, Rex Ewerman. I mean, I guess at this point we can really hope that he is the perpetrator, right? Of all these individuals. And I think there might've been a toddler also, Bill. If I was going to bring yes, that up. Yes. Yeah. There's a, a toddler and, you know, we don't know yet how that's connected um, or who that child belonged to. But I, I don't think, do we know who, whose child this was? I don't, I don't think, think that's do. been revealed. Yet, really, no. Okay. Um, but yeah. I mean, at this point, like I said, I think, you know, we can just hope that, you know, that this person is the perpetrator for all these murders and that they've caught the person who's done all these things, because you're right. If, if he's not, then, you know, um, you know it's, it's interesting because it seems mind boggling, you know, okay, what are the odds that you would have two serial killers dumping bodies in the same place? And yet you can look at periods in time, I think at one time there were like 
five to seven serial killers in LA, you know, operating in all these different areas. And so it's not that, um, you know, out of the range of possibility that you have two people who were, you know, over a period of time or, or disposing of bodies or leaving young victims in a certain location or this, a similar location. Well, Dr. Joni, what would you say to people that live in this Long Island area to perhaps put them at ease that there's a good chance this is the guy? However, these killings haven't happened since 2010, 2011, yeah. right? Well, I think one thing, and both of you talked about it earlier, and I want to just emphasize that, but I think it certainly does affirm how invested police are in solving these murders. You know, this is a cold case that went on for a long period of time. There were some issues that came up. There were some issues with police and that kind of thing. But look, you know, a new, a new person came on board, formed a task force, and I think the message is not only that, you know, yes, you know, we are invested in everybody who is on Long Island, but, you know, there's been a lot, you know, somebody who talks to a lot of victims, there have been a lot of, um, I think, perceptions in the past that individuals who, for example, were engaging in sex work or had a drug addiction were not treated as, as seriously as other victims of crime. And so I think another really positive message that's come out of this work in addition to the amazing investigation is that no we we, we care about everybody we, you know everybody deserves justice and we are going to find who did this to whoever is a victim um, because nobody deserves that you know dr Joni, we had we, in our careers on the nypd we've had experiences that prostitutes or sex workers were excellent witnesses and they didn't sure. they viewed they viewed what they did as their job and they were not going to be a victim and then be apologetic about it they would they would go and prosecute these people and they lots of times we dealt with them and believe me police don't i don't think they look down at people and say we're not going to work this case hard because you're a sex worker mm -hmm. i mean i that's what they were accused of by some of the families and one of these attorneys uh that pointed the finger and look they were working hard on this case this was a very very difficult case and technology surpassed investigation and enabled them to get the necessary evidence that resulted in solving this case um look connect the dots i say that all the time there's not one single thing that solved this case you have to connect the dots and that's what solved this case go ahead phil what I wanted to say was with regard to a victim. Now, uh, sometimes there are victims that could be involved in prostitution, narcotics, organized crime, and you don't deal with that person once they're there. You deal with the family. So you see the hurt and the pain when a mother is feeling that pain or a sister or a wife or a husband, whoever it is. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't say, well, you know, this is a person that deserved, doesn't mask itself. You see that pain and that's who you are trying to get justice for. So I don't think that saying that about the investigators that they didn't take this case to heart because, uh, the, you know, these girls were involved in, in uh, the sex trade. I don't believe that to be true. You know, the families came forward. Uh, they're showing the hurt and the pain. You're going to work it the same way you work any case. And unfortunately, like Billy pointed out, it took a long time. And the reason was it was a very difficult case. Once the science uh, moved forward, uh, Rodney Harrison breathed new life into the case. Everybody got together and we are where we are today. And I think uh, when Rodney Harrison said today's a great day, two days ago in that press conference, he was correct. Yeah. Dr. Joni, from the chat, and uh, even though he asked me, I'm going to uh, toss this to you. Joni, how do we know he has not killed mm -hmm. again since 2010? I sure think he has. He just does not strike me as someone who would say, I'm not going to do this again. That's hard to believe. Dr. Joni. It is hard to believe. I mean, I have to agree with um, our esteemed Frank, Frank, Frank I also am concerned about him having killed before this because it's not very common for um, you know serial killers to start in their 40s. Which is when he would have started if the first victim was, you know, was killed in 19, in 2007. So not only do I think they have to take a close look, and I'm sure they are, at all the things that have happened after 2010, but all the things that have happened, you know, or murders that have happened prior to 2007, 
and looking at where he was and what access he had and those kinds of things, because I'm, I'm concerned about things on either end. Dr. I couldn't Jones, agree is with it, you more. Is it um, cliche to say, oh, he probably killed animals. He probably tortured animals. Is that a cliche thing about serial killers or in your uh, investigative travels, have you seen that that's true? That's such a good question, Bill. Um, and I really admire you for asking it because I think people still think that everybody who kills a human has killed animals at some point, and that certainly isn't true. However, about a third of serial killers killed animals prior to starting to kill um, people, which is a lot higher than the average population, the general population. So there's definitely a relationship, right, between animal cruelty and cruelty to people. At the same time, that suggests that the majority of people who hurt human beings don't hurt animals. So what we're finding now, a lot of times, Bill, is that when you see children, for example, who are hurting animals, and they're, I'm talking about kids who are like 10, 11. I mean, when a, when a child is three and they pull a cat's tail, that's because they think it's a toy. You know, developmentally, I, they can't I, understand. Doc, I, I confess I did that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our session will just start after. And I became, and I became a cop. <laughs> We're going to have to pick this up privately, Bill. <laughs> How much you charge an hour, Doc? <laughs> so the, only, the last thing I'll say about this, but I think it is relevant, is that um, a lot of times when you see children, again, seven, eight, nine, who understand that this is an animal, is a live human being, is not a, to a toy that you can just play with, a lot of times what you find is not necessarily that's a, that's a budding serial killer, but that this is a child who's experienced trauma. So oftentimes you will have a child who has witnessed domestic violence, for example, they witnessed violence in the home or they've been physically abused or whatever, and they're acting out that same trauma on, on a, you know, so it is a sign that something is wrong when you see a child again over the age of nine who is hurting an animal. Something is wrong and that needs to be addressed within that family, but it doesn't mean they're a budding serial, you know, budding serial killer. And again, you know, to kind of answer your question, loop back to the initial question is, yes, there is a relationship between animal cruelty and human cruelty, but it's not as direct as we thought. And I can tell you, I have entered, I've worked with many, many, many uh, violent offenders who you know, are horrified at the thought of hurting an animal, even if they beat somebody to death. They just think, and so it's it's just more complicated than we initially thought. If only things were as easy or as, as simple as we thought they you know they were many years ago. Well, you can't. So can I make a comment on on the on on whether you, can't, you can't pigeonhole yeah. anyone into a certain right. you know one size fits all. But I wanted to ask one question before Phil I ask your question. What would you think his relationship was like with his wife? Was she, obviously, she must have been an enabler that just ignored a lot of things. And to segue off that, what was the relationship like with his adult children? It is so difficult to answer that question. I'll tell you why. Because if you look at serial killers who are married, you run the gamut. And meaning there are serial killers who were you know physically abusive, sexually abusive to their family. I mean, just complete, just violent people across the board, right? And, and, and nobody's surprised to find out this person's a serial killer, basically. And then you find people who their spouse said, you know, he treated me like we're on our honeymoon still. We've been married for 20 years. So you can literally see people across the board. I mean, Gary Ridgway, the Green, you know, the, the Green River serial killer. When he was arrested, and this, you know, he took 20 years to arrest him. His wife said exactly that. He had never, ever laid a hand on her. He never raised his voice to her. Um, so, you know, some, I think, I think it depends probably on the dynamics within that person. Uh, you know, some people who have a sexual deviance or a paraphilia, and certainly sexual sadism is one, can somehow put it into a box and put it over here and compartmentalize that. And they don't see their victims as people, they're just objects to be used to satisfy their sexual gratification. But they're over here and here's the other part of their life that they're able to kind of function normally and keep those them separate. And then some people, that's just who they are. They're just, you know, again, violent, uh, you know, impulsive, uh, abusive, et cetera. So it's very difficult 
to, to you know, it, it, I would be surprised if this was somebody who was very physically abusive to his family or to his wife, um, because I think because he maintained a business for a period of time, he seemed to function in the community. Neighbors aren't reporting anything that they heard. So I would imagine that I don't know how close they were, but I would imagine they had what appeared to be on the outside, a pretty normal relationship. It sounds like split personality, Doc. Would that be falling into that category where it would be a split personality? No, you know, it's interesting because split personality is such a different thing. You know, it's kind of like okay. having alter egos and it was related to kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes it's a whole different thing. It's almost like, and this is a very minor example, but when we think about how we act at home and then we're getting ready to go to work. So I can, here's a, here's a, here's a personal example. My mom died very suddenly many years ago and I was devastated by that. And I mean, devastated because it was out of the blue and just, you know, and so I was so just devastated by that. I had just signed a book contract and it, the book was due in three months and I really wanted to do this book. And I knew my mom would be very proud of me. And so I would talk on the phone and I managed to do this book in three months. And so it was like, I can remember that it was almost like I put my grief and my emotions was able to put it in a box, focus on that. Right. I compartmentalize that. Yeah. Now, when the that book was sense. turned in, you know, all heck broke loose. <laughs> you know, it was like, woof. You know. Yeah. Um, but I think we can all relate to some. Yes, one hundred percent. Personally, as a police officer, when I'm home playing with my when my kids were toddlers, I'm playing with my uh, my children that were toddlers, and then I go into work and I have to, you know, sit in an interview room and try and get a confession out of a, a homicidal maniac. You know, your your demeanor is going to be quite different. So I think. Uh, that really, uh, that really makes sense. The, the comment I was going to make before about whether or not he killed before or after, since the, uh, the big focus was on the, uh, the Gogo Beach area, I mean, it kind of makes sense that he may have stopped putting bodies in that location. He may have gone back there, taken a selfie and stuff like that. But I don't think he was going to go back there with a, with a, a human body, a, a dead human body there, perhaps that would, you know, blow the whole thing wide open. And if you look at Joel Rifkin, Joel Rifkin was captured. He was trying to get rid of a body and that's, he was pulled over in, in Long Island and a, a state trooper asked him what he got in the back. And it turned out that he had a, a dead female, you know, also he was uh, killing sex workers. So, uh, you know, when you think about it, perhaps he went to a different location that really hasn't been found yet or and and i think i agree with you 100 percent. you know 2007 he was in his 40s perhaps there was something else going on before this and maybe uh the bodies were never uh were never found they could have been you know placed in a garbage dump or something like that so again uh stuff definitely should be looked at it, it just seems very unlikely that he stopped at that point you know when when the big focus went on the gilgo beach area yeah. The other thing that supports what both of you have said is that he apparently tried to keep up with the investigation. So he was very yes. aware of the investigation yes. and what was going on. And so in some respects, I could have I could almost believe that he was more likely to have killed before um, all this started than than after. Although I certainly question whether he did afterwards as well. Sorry if I kind of kept you from doing your thing there, Bill. You, you know what it sounds okay. The, the point you just made, Doc, that really hits home because if you look at the way he operated, it was almost like he was really good at it. He was using burner phones. He had fake email addresses. He was staying in contact with sex workers. He had, you know, killed all these people already. So I think it really makes sense what you just said. That laid it out perfectly. You know, Deborah Barron, we uh, we mentioned this exact thing that you're mentioning now very early on in the show, that he, he uh, approached a young woman on July 3rd in Brady Park in Massapequa, which shows he's plying his trade in his own community. And whether his trade is killing or a se sexual uh, gratification in some illegal way, uh, he's, still, he's still doing it or he's setting up, he's setting up to do it, you know. And which, to me, as a cop, too, that's scary because mm -hmm. everything this guy does is premeditated. And this girl who was not a sex worker, uh, she became terrified. And, you know, it's that old expression. If your instincts are telling you something, trust Listen. your instincts. Absolutely. Listen to your instincts. 100%. Let me just play a little bit of this. We've been... Uh, Give us a little. Authorities say that they have arrested a man believed to be the Gilgo Beach serial killer. 
Law enforcement took Rex Hewerman into custody late Thursday, and his home was being searched on Friday. He's lived for decades across the bay from where multiple sets of human remains were found. I, you know, I just, I just wanted to go back one second to show you, uh, to show you and the house. Believed to be quickly. the Gilgo Beach serial killer. Law enforcement took Rex Hewerman into custody late Thursday, and his home was being searched on Friday. He's lived for decades. This is the home of an architect. Look at that. Look at how run down it is. He's a some, you know, he owns his own business. This Massapequa area is a middle to upper class area. Look at the roof on this house. I mean, is that that sign of of who he is? Or, you know, I hope someone doesn't come to my house and say this, you know, but but I'm just saying, <laughs> does that does that show a little bit who this guy is? Uh, it, it definitely does. I mean, where we live says a lot about who we are. But, you know, but in terms of why, I think that's kind of puzzling. I mean, I found myself wondering everything from, is this guy um, somebody who doesn't want anybody in? Like, are there things in there in his house that he doesn't want people to see? Is that why he's not letting, there's no renovation or those kinds of things? Or is he just somebody that, you know, grew up in this house, he's comfortable there? And he just wants it to be the same, just just to kind of keep it the way that it is. So it I don't it does say something about him. I'm not sure what it is though. You know, and Dr. Joni, this is his childhood home yeah. that he never left. He bought this home from his parents. It's across the bay from where multiple sets of human remains were found. He's now charged with first and second degree murder in connection with the deaths of three women, and he's considered a prime suspect in a fourth. Suffolk County prosecutors are asking for Hewerman to be held without bail because of the nature of the crimes, as well as very unsettling internet searches that included child pornography. Hewerman is a married father of two and a licensed architect in Manhattan. Authorities say they first identified him as a suspect in March of last year, and the task force took over from there. Our, our partners and uh, my office, we use the grand jury to continue to investigate. And we executed over 300 subpoenas, search warrants pertaining to this individual to find out more information. Uh, one of the things that we did is we followed him because we wanted to get an abandonment sample of his DNA, uh, which we were able to do. Uh, we also got uh, DNA samples, abandonment samples from his family. Uh, this really um, um, supported our decision to keep our investigative um, focus secret because we knew that one person would be watching and we didn't want to give him uh, any insight into what we were doing. And You know, we, we were a little bit critical yesterday. This The district attorney, uh, this is the Suffolk County DA, his name is, bless him, is Tyranny. He basically laid out the whole damn case in this press conference, which we as New York City police investigators, homicide investigators, we found it not just curious, but ridiculous. Like, why are you telling the defense how and where and your methodology? And the I am a firm believer, too, is this prison in state prison is listening to this and studying how the police do it, how they found this guy. And they'll take notes. And the next time they do something like this, they won't make those mistakes. And people don't just don't understand this. I had some, I don't want to get into it, some lawyer saying, oh, you're all wrong. It was perfectly good what he did. No, what he did was horrible. And he told exactly how they, almost every step of the, and look, I have it right in front of me. You want to see what he said? It's in this 32-page bail application report that gives the prosecution's point of view. But we as New York City cops cringed absolutely cringe at this press conference. Phil. He gave way too much information out. Listen, in discovery, when, they, you know, as the criminal justice system, the wheels turn, a uh, person is arrested, uh, prosecutors eventually have to turn over all evidence and discovery uh, motions uh, during the, the uh, hearings and stuff. So, but why would you give them a head start? And then the other thing that I don't like about it is it starts all these conspiracy theories, whether or not he's guilty, he's not guilty, was he there, he's not there. I think he gave away a little bit too much. To me, it looks like he became starstruck and he was on uh, Fox and Friends this morning. So again, just uh, maybe a little bit too much. He's got to pull it back a bit. I don't think that uh, the investigators on his case probably are happy with what he's doing. Uh, the case needs to be tried in court. And I don't think it should be tried in, in, uh, you know, in the public uh, and on TV and on cable news. 
so again, uh, just pull it back oh, a little Phil, bit. There, Phil, I can tell you, he's never getting invited to the Police Off the Cuff podcast. Good. <laughs> he's off the list. Phil, like, go do this commercial, please. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, if you found yourself in a gym and you're in need of legal counsel in the New York area, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. So he's also got a boxing background. And if your case needs that knockout punch, Joe Murray is your man. You can reach Joe at Joe Murray. I'm sorry. Uh, jmurray-law.com is his website. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. You can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe's a big supporter of police off-the-cuff real crime stories. You know, Dr. Joni, I said that I would get you out of here in an hour, and I can't believe it. We're, we're at 56 minutes already, so I'm going to keep my word, but I just want to plug you a little bit also. This is Dr. Joni's uh, podcast, Unmasking a Murderer. A serial killer is released and starts praying again with Dr. Joni Johnston. And she also has this book, Joni Johnston, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. Uh, it's on Amazon, and you can get um, Dr. Joni Johnston's podcast. I guess it's on YouTube, right, Dr. Joni? It is. You know, Dr. Joni, I'm so glad that I called you early Uh because I would imagine your phone's ringing off the hook right now. And I just want, if I can get you to promise one thing, I would just like you to promise that you would come on uh, again as this case progresses and we find out more. I think that the investigative part of this case is not even close uh, to being finished. I think they're going to find more. If, oh, you know what I want to also ask you, Dr. Joni? Is it the usual thing what the serial killer when caught invokes counsel it's certainly not uncommon particularly in these days i mean i think that it, you know i think law enforcement and again i'm speaking for both of you i would imagine it's they're in a tough position sometimes now because you know like you were saying it's horrifying from your perspective and it's interesting to hear that all this information is released you know about, about what, what has been done how they call it and whatever and then there's all this stuff on the internet and all this social media stuff already it's almost like what do you do if you're an investigator, because those conspiracy theories are going to start no matter what. There you go. So the, in the absence of information, things are going to go wild. When there is information, things are going to go wild. So you have to kind of figure out it's, it's a tough position to be in. It really is. Um, but to answer your question, I absolutely. I would love to come back on and have a conversation as this case progresses. And I'm really hoping that we can say, you know, months from now that, yes, this was the person who did all these things and never did it before and never did it after that. And it's all over. That would be absolutely fantastic. The only other thing I, if you don't mind, Bill, I would just mention, um, ahead, sure. you know, obviously thinking about the families who just, you know, who I, the families who have some peace and they're, I hate the word closure. There's no such thing, but have more peace now than they had before. And the families who are still waiting, you know, to hear some answers. And then also, I guess, you know, the family of the alleged perpetrator, because I do think, you know, I think they had no idea likely that anything was going on. And, and, and so to that extent, they're victims too. And sometimes I, I do feel bad when I see people really, you know, leaving horrible messages, you know, for family members of the alleged perpetrator who were oftentimes in shock and had no idea what was going on. So I think it's, you know, let's not, let's, you know, direct our energy and our feelings toward the, the, the person that, that once the person has been convicted, but at least toward the person that the evidence suggests has done something wrong. Absolutely. They're innocent as well. Family members are innocent. I mean, unless they partake in this horrible, right. horrific criminal activity, which we don't think that's the case. So again, they're, they're innocents as well. They're victims as well. I mean, it's hard to even call them that, but in reality, that's what they are. Yeah. So, Phil, I was going to give you last words, and uh, and then I'll give Dr. Joni last words, and then we'll say sayonara. Go ahead, Phil, last words. Last words. I got something to plug. Right now at 10 p.m. tonight on the Oxygen Network, uh, I was involved in a case that involved serial killers. Uh, it's going on right now on the Oxygen Network. It's called New York Homicide. It was a case from 1991. Uh, these two guys were on a 13-hour rampage. It turns out they killed other people as well. So if anybody wants to switch over to that, Again, we got to recognize the victims, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, 
and not yet charged. Uh, Rex Hewerman is not yet charged with the murder of Maureen Branagh Burns and perhaps the other victims as well. Uh, let's just, you know, say a prayer for them. Uh, hope that they're resting in peace. And there is some semblance of uh, justice at this point. Like you said, Dr. Joni, I'm a firm believer. There's no such thing as closure. You're just able to move forward and live what, what has happened. But there is going to be justice in this case, as we can see it, as far as we can see right now. Dr. Joni, final words. I could say love lives here. It's on your chair. So that's really <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I think I said it a minute ago, you know, just remembering the victims and remembering that these are real people who are going through a difficult time. Their families are. And, they're, you know, I hope that the media is kind to them because, you know, in the frenzy of everything and everything breaking, it can be a little bit hectic for them. And I guess just the last thing would be, yeah, go watch um, Phil on Absolutely. Oxygen. It sounds like a great, like a, like a great show. <laughs> Absolutely. Dr. Joni, thank you so much, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Police off the cuff, real crime stories. Dr. Joni, we'll see you soon. Sounds good. Stay it's safe. Good night, Dr. One episode, just ain't enough.